Welcome back to Series 2 of Future Lab, the podcast from Randox and the Goodwood Festival of Speed, where we bring you stories of the newest game-changing technologies heading our way and how they're helping to build a better world for everyone. I'm Lucy Johnston. In my job, I search the globe for pioneers and inventors to understand what the world of tomorrow might look like. And I curate the annual Future Lab Live exhibition where we bring to life just some of these incredible stories. For this series, I've been speaking to some inspirational people whose inventions are aiming to deal with some of the world's toughest challenges, from traffic-busting flying taxis that could be coming to a city near you, to super-strength robotic exoskeletons that could make people safer at work. We'll also be exploring how technology can bring us closer to the stars and to opening up entire virtual worlds. In this first episode, I want to tell you the story of a world-class racing professional who was told he would never drive again after a spinal injury left him without the use of arms or legs. How through determination and a collaboration that pushed both man and machine to their limits, he and the team rewrote the rulebook on what is possible when technology is applied with accessibility in mind. We'll be hearing about the never-done-before challenges of developing a car that can be driven by someone who's quadriplegic and about the laser focus and iron will required to drive it. I I just can't say enough about what it's done for me and my belief, what you can accomplish if you put the right people in the right room with some resources and say, go accomplish this goal. It really is phenomenal. But before we meet the driver, let's hear from the team who first set the project in motion. In 2013-2014, not only did Arrow establish its first corporate social responsibility program, but decided that to really make a difference in the world, we needed to focus on technologies that make people's lives better rather than just being a company that makes donations. This is Joe Varengia from Arrow Electronics. Arrow is an American Fortune 500 tech consultancy specializing in distributing and connecting electronics to solve all kinds of challenges. Our expertise in bringing technologies to market, you know, with our suppliers and customers, means that we are in a special position to be able to prototype technologies that can address the problem. We picked physical disability for a couple of reasons. One was that all of us will be disabled sometime in our lives, if only by the aging process, if nothing else. And the second thing is that you can make a difference in people's physical mobility rather quickly with technology. Then we decided that we ought to do it in a car. One, because that mobility, getting people out of their houses means that they can have a more typical life and they may be able to go back to work and support their family. And then we decided to do it in a race car because that's just really cool. <laughs> and and if you can do it at 200 miles an hour, then you can probably do it effectively for more people at a slower speed as time goes on. When we watch a race, it might seem like it's all down to the drivers out on the track. But what we're witnessing is the pinnacle of a collaboration between driver and machine, 
and behind that machine, a swathe of engineers, scientists and technologists at the top of their game. Racing is not only a technology-driven sport, but the environment of racing, it's an extreme environment. It's a, really a crucible for technology. It's a testbed for technology. If you can do it on the track, then it's likely to work in a, in a more typical environment. So the challenge is set. Develop a car that someone can race, but without the use of arms or legs. The concept they developed was named the SAM car, which stands for semi-autonomous motor car. But you can't get very far with just the machine. You need the perfect collaborator to drive it. Once we came up with this concept and we started working on the technology itself, how to operate a car using only your head, we had to find someone who fit those criteria and was the type of person who would be willing to take on that challenge. And that's when we started looking for such a person. As you can imagine, it's not an enormously big pool of people. But it turned out the perfect person to drive the SAM car did exist. He even, by chance, had the name to match. Uh, thanks for having us. I'm Sam Schmidt. Basically been racing since I was five years old. I uh, started out in off-road motocross. My father was a desert racer, and he kind of brought me up that way. And I think uh, a lot of my friends did you know, stick and ball, baseball, basketball, football, but I grew up, you know, in the desert. I always aspired to go to the Indy 500 growing up. That was just a lifelong dream. Racing was in Sam's blood, but after he'd had first-hand experience of how dangerous the sport can be, he decided to follow a different path. When I was a teenager, my father was actually paralyzed racing. So it's kind of an irony or uh, the nut doesn't fall far from the tree, but... Uh, I had no idea at that time how much of an effect that would have on me later in life. So because of his paralysis, I did finish my studies and went on and got an MBA in international finance. And my last name wasn't, uh, you know, Andretti or Unser or something really well known. So I had to figure out a different pathway to get to the 500. And that was through business and cultivating relationships and ultimately got there a little later in life than normal. But uh you know, that was the passion, that was the drive, that was the goal. The first time Sam drove professionally in the Indy Racing League, he was 31 and won Rookie of the Year. His star continued to rise. He made 27 career starts and won at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway in 1999. But one day, during a practice lap at the Walt Disney World Speedway in Orlando, everything changed. I was testing for the 2000 season and hit the wall, blew apart my neck in uh, C4 or 5 vertebrae and uh, was basically on a ventilator. And the doctor told my wife to find me a nursing home that I'd be on the ventilator the rest of my life and probably have three to five years to live. But Sam was not about to give up on his racing dreams. He was only just getting started. The Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox, a medical diagnostics company based in Belfast. Since 1982, Randox has been at the forefront of innovation and a leader in the diagnostics industry. 
the future of healthcare is all about easy access to personalized data and in lots of detail. You know, we know that we can go online and we can find out what the weather's like in Jamaica, but you can't, you know, Google what's going on inside your own stomach. Katie Coyle is a principal scientist on the Randox Health Team. She's an expert in preventative healthcare. Healthcare is one of the main areas where accessing more and better data has the potential to radically impact our lives. It's why people wear fitness trackers or let their phones monitor their sleep, step counts and heart rate. Having all of this information provides individuals with the ability to see the full picture of their own health. Katie explains... If we went to an art museum and we were walking around huge pieces of art, if I covered one in brown paper and I say, what's going on in this picture? Well, you'll not be able to see anything or, or tell me. If I say, OK, you can pluck 10 holes and you might be able to see a glimpse of colour, but you've no idea what's going on in the image. And until I let you pluck another 30 holes and another 50 holes, for you to start to reveal and actually see what the image is, is, is of and what is going on in that painting, you can't look in isolation. We bring our amazing technology and tests direct to the consumer and enable people to really understand their whole health in lots of detail. Having a holistic view of your health can give individuals the power to be proactive and uncover issues before they show. We'll come back to Katie and hear more about the work Randox does later in the episode. Now, back to the Future Lab podcast. Sam Schmidt, after hearing the news he'd lost the use of his arms and legs, decided his way back into the world of racing would be through setting up and managing a racing team. You know, when, when you get in a situation it takes two and a half hours to get up every morning, you really want every day to have a lot of purpose. And for me, that was motorsports. And so, yeah, about a year after my accident, we started an Indy Lights team. And uh, we won seven championships and had a great deal of success. So that's a heck of a lot of fun. And this year we finished third in the championship. So that team does extremely well. And in parallel, we started the foundation. The foundation he's talking about is the Sam Schmidt Paralysis Foundation, SSPF which funds research and advocates for people with disabilities. You know, I, real, I realized early on that uh, I had a lot of benefits as far as insurance and a great community and a great family support that a lot of people don't have. The foundation is all about spreading that opportunity to others. Even with these new avenues, as far as Sam knew, the chance to actually be in the driving seat was long behind him. Well, not so fast. Enter Joe Varengia. He's still looking for that perfect driver to collaborate with him on the Sam car. And here's through a contact that Sam might just be the one he's looking for. So he sends him a text. He answered the text message in maybe five seconds. And his answer was, if you build it, I'll drive it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it was great. It was such a great moment. And, and we were celebrating. You know, the team was looking, you know, around the phone and we're celebrating. But there was one small caveat. And then about 30 seconds later, another text message comes from Sam. And he says, if you're not willing to go at least 100 miles an hour, don't waste my time. That's when we really knew we had our man. Because 
we wanted to go fast and he wanted to go fast. And that's how it got started. When he first called, you get a lot of calls like that, right? Like, hey, you want to drive again? And you find out pretty quick they want a lot of money or they want this or they want that. And and you pretty much have to support the whole thing. And when Joe told me about the company, what they did, what their capabilities were, I'm like, oh, man, this this can be real. And I hadn't, uh, I hadn't driven in 14 years. And at the same time, I knew it was going to take a lot of time and effort and resources on both parties. And I, I said to myself, you know, we're not going to do this to go 30 or 40 miles an hour. We have to do it. You know, we have to have a really good measurable goal that uh, proves the capabilities of the technology. So that's where the, the 100 mile per hour target came from. So the race is on. They've set themselves a target of May 2014 at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. That gives them less than a year to develop a car that Sam can drive with only his head at 100 miles an hour. The first step was a simulator where both driver and engineers were free to play and experiment without putting Sam in any danger. He took to the simulator and he, it was the first thing he had driven, even though it was a simulator, not a real car. It was the first thing he had driven in 14 years. Within a, a couple of seconds, he was off. He was going. And he was going around the simulated race course. And he kept going faster and faster. He was well over 100 miles an hour in his first lap and kept going. And then he was over 200 miles an hour within a couple laps. And then he hit the wall. And, you know, he pushed it to the limits. And even in the simulator, I was very afraid that emotionally it would be a setback for him because he crashed in the simulator. And would that trigger memories and emotions for him? And, you know, would that be a problem for him and for us? And all he did was laugh and said, you know, reset the simulator, let's go again. This is part of it. So again, right then I knew that, you know, he was, his makeup is different than the rest of us. But how do you drive a car without any of the interfaces we're all used to? So here's how it works. He has that straw in his mouth. The straw has a pressure sensor in it, and it's called sip and puff technology. I'll blow into a sip and puff straw to go. And he sucks back on the straw for braking. What's amazing about it all is it's all completely progressive, no different than if it's your hands or your feet. If you blow really hard, it's going to go, like, really fast. The steering is actually a little bit more challenging. So for steering, we have four infrared cameras in the cockpit of the car. He wears a pair of sunglasses that have sensors on them. It communicates directly with infrared cameras. And as I turn my head to the left, it goes left when I turn my head to the right, goes right. So it's not looking where at his eyes, it's looking for his entire head. And there's absolutely no delay whatsoever. That's what, that's what blows my mind. Within a fraction of a fraction of a second, the information and the measurements captured by those infrared beams go to a central computer that we've added to the car that takes an average of the angle of his head. And that becomes the steering instruction 
to the wheels. And it turns the car exactly where his head is moving. And it's actually quicker than your hands on the wheel. And it's all programmable, too, to where I can, I can change the turning ratio based on the track we're at. So even has more probably adaptability than if I was using my hands and my legs, you know, to drive the car. So Your team, after hours one evening, your team very kindly let me try the simulator. And just the sheer, you know, this kind of emotion and amazement when I blew into the straw and the simulator glided me forward. I was so amazed that I then stopped breathing, you know, took my mouth off the straw, was going, this is incredible. And obviously, when you do that, then you grind to a halt. I can totally relate in the... uh... The, the quickness with which the equipment responds is just, that's where it's like a black hole for me. I don't understand how it happens or how it happens so quickly, but, uh, but I'm glad it does. On the flip side of that is you have to, it's probably more mentally challenging than ever driving this car, even more mentally challenging than driving a race car because you have to be laser focused on where you want to go and you can't turn your head in advance of needing to turn the car because the car will turn. Same thing. If you take a a breath in, it's going to throw the brakes on. So just a lot of those type of things. And every action has an immediate reaction in that car. So you just have to be laser focused on where you're headed. And that's probably what took the most time, uh, you know, to get used to. But then again, hadn't driven in 15 years. So it was fairly easy to learn. uh, You know, this is all I've been doing the entire time. This sip and puff technology is actually already used in motorized wheelchairs. We tried to use existing technologies for two reasons. Obviously, the entire solution is unique and new, but everything that goes into the package has existed before. And there's two important reasons for that. Number one, Arrow is not a technology maker. We are a technology solutions aggregator and distributor. As a company, it was important that this reflect what we do. The second part is that for safety, we wanted to use things that Sam was already familiar with. Because when you're going as fast as 201 miles an hour, your margin of error is very small and your ability and time to correct a mistake is very, very brief. And so we didn't want him to revert to prior habits in a moment of crisis. Soon simulators were not enough. They needed to test their setup on the track. They integrated the technology into a modified 2014 Corvette C7 Stingray, which was packed with cameras and sensors and went from virtual racing to the real deal. We had done a couple simulator runs, as you did, and crashed a lot of cars that way, which was uh, good to get out of our system. But... uh, Then we went to Indy for a soft test in April of 2014, and it was raining, it was miserable, it was not a good day, and, you know, the car was really scary to drive at about 60 miles an hour. So, I mean, that's where the engineers really went to work, because we were about a month shy of having to display the car and try to go 100 miles an hour in front of 100,000 people, and nobody wanted to be embarrassed. It was all hands on deck, they only had a month to get the car up to the speed they had boldly promised. Of everybody to rise to the occasion and make things happen no different than a motorsports team or, you know, p- 
people going to the moon. You know, they worked nonstop that entire time. Uh, the emotions were very high. I, I, I think I anticipated, you know, the anxiety and the almost like starting a race type of uh, exhilaration. Lights out and away he goes. Sam reaches 97 miles per hour. So close to 100, but not quite there. Well, the next day, Sam gets to 107. I was not anticipating the crowd's reaction. And uh, as I drove by the pits uh, on the front straightaway, and all the 33 drivers were out there in their racing uniforms, you know, cheering me on. And, and then I think the one thing that really surprised me was just this overall sense of normalcy, right? That in my life, I need assistance, you know, for pretty much everything I do. And I don't have a lot of control, but in that car, I'm 100% in control of the brakes, of the gas, of the steering. And, you know, that, that just, my gosh, I'm driving again and I'm in trouble to control after 15 years was very, very emotional. And, you know, it's, it's been a great ride ever since, for sure. Being able to drive around places like Indianapolis and Laguna Seca, and, you know, the, these, these iconic motorsports venues, just a dream come true and something I never thought I would do again. I, I just can't say enough about what it's done for me. And, you know, sort of revitalized after 14 years, my belief, what you can accomplish if you put the right people in the right room with some resources and say, go accomplish this goal. It really is phenomenal. I've learned a few things in this project. Number one, I've learned that Sam Schmidt is still one of the best drivers in the world, even though he can only move from his shoulders to the top of his head. There have been huge emotional moments very heartfelt, life-changing, emotional moments in this project. Obviously, when he demonstrated at Indianapolis for the first time and he drove four laps at over 100 miles an hour, it was an enormous technology accomplishment, but it was an even bigger physical and personal accomplishment for him. And not only did all of the race car drivers at Indy who are competing with each other, rush out and surrounded the car and congratulated him. His peers were happy for him. That was hugely emotional. And then his mother came out. She hadn't seen him drive in almost 15 years. She hadn't seen him do anything except be in his wheelchair since he had been injured. And so to see him out there driving again and for his mother to hug him, she was the only member of his family who could be there that day. It was a huge moment. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier, we spoke to Katie Coyle, a scientist at Randox Health. She's going to tell us more about the tech Randox has developed to analyse and decode tiny signals in our body in order to provide better healthcare. We keep it simple because we like to take care of everything that's complex. And we really do make these hundreds of data points as utilisable and understandable as possible for people because that is the key. For nearly a decade, Katie has been at Randox working on what a new vision of healthcare could look like. 
So this is what they set out to do. Randox knew that blood samples contain a huge wealth of data about our bodies, information that can be used to diagnose suspected health conditions as well as monitor people's health long term. But they wanted to revolutionise the way patient blood samples are tested to do that. So they developed a tiny piece of technology called a biochip, which is a 9x9mm ceramic microchip, about the size of a fingernail. So the Randox Biochip Array technology is based on accurately measuring the proteins within our body. A small blood sample is taken from a patient, which then goes on to the biochip, where there are discrete test regions for different tests. The biochip goes inside one of our Randox analyzers, and a chemiluminescence reaction happens to allow us to measure specifically each individual protein that we're measuring for. So whether that is iron, ferritin, gastrin, whether that's all of your hormones, proteins to do with your digestive system, nutrition, your thyroid. Randox also has a team of scientists who will look after the mathematical algorithms and interpret what these patterns of data mean to the patient. This process is more time and cost efficient than traditional tests. We'll come back to the biochip a bit later in the show, but for now, back to the Future Lab podcast. Since Sam Schmidt, alongside Arrow, first showed their technology to the world, it's been non-stop. Sam has since raced on equal footing with able-bodied drivers in traditional cars, leaving plenty of them in his dust. He's blasted past a new target of 200 miles an hour and taken on some of the world's most challenging racetracks. One drive in particular really pushed him and the team to their limits. The true test of the faith in the technology and the engineers was really Pike's Peak. Imagine a dusty road snaking up the side of a steep mountain. The sort of thing you'd see at the beginning of a James Bond film with dangerously tight hairpins. Seven people have died on it in races over the last 100 years. To attack that mountain, 13 miles of 156 turns and three and 4,000 foot drops off the side of the road, that was when we got to the top and said, holy cow, like that was really stupid. It really did validate the system, validated our trust in it. We didn't, we didn't take it easy. Uh, we did it in 15 minutes. And that to me is the craziest thing we've done in seven years, but also sort of the most validating of the technology. And of course, there was also Goodwood's very own track, the famous hill climb at the Festival of Speed, a 1.2-mile track snaking through the festival site lined with straw bales, grandstands, and thousands of fans, including me. The challenge at Goodwood is that with the hay bales, the straw bales, being relatively high, his line of sight and for where he needs to look and point the narrowness and the alternating between going in and out of the shadows was very challenging for him as an individual and very challenging for our technology. So we had everything we could handle everything we could handle. Yeah, and he was flying down there. And he's flying down there. But on the hill climb with the straw bales, his line of sight is so much more constricted 
So that means, you know, we have a safety officer in the car with him who has hand controls that we can take over control of the car instantly if he is having a physical problem. That's part of our requirements. I saw you on the hill climb. I was standing behind the hay bales. How did that feel? I mean, seven years ago, the goal was to go 100 miles an hour, which uh, we did year one. And every year we've checked different boxes to where last year we actually went over 200 miles an hour in the Corvette. And and they said, you know, what would you like to do? And I'm like, man, if I got to go to Goodwood, that's a lifelong dream. It's, it's not incredibly long, but I think it's uh, just the amount of people and the amount of eyeballs, uh, the amount of things that are going on. It's, it's entirely sensory overload, you know, and uh, you have to refocus. For Sam, being able to race again has been a dream come true. But this is about more than one person. Both Sam and Joe want this project to be a springboard for solutions that can have benefits across the disabled community. I wish I could build a car for every disabled person in the world. You know, obviously that's not reasonable. But I do think that the technology has applications to everyday life, simply because you know, we see technologies in, in the racing world applying to everyday driving and mobility over time. You know, racing has always been a test bed for how we all eventually get around. And I don't think this is really a whole lot different. I think that the applications for this technology package where all of the control of the car is accomplished with whatever you have physically from your shoulders up because that's his level of disability. He can move his shoulders, he can turn his head, he can speak. So everything from his shoulders up is good. And so that's what he uses and that's what we use. I think there are applications both for the disabled community and for the broader world for these types of controls that can apply in other circumstances. I think we'll all get there, but right now we're focused on the car. I mean, we see it a lot, don't we, with Formula One, for example. We tell stories in Future Lab of technologies being used in you know, the new space race or ocean exploration or whatever. And a lot of those technologies have come from Formula One, for example, because that incredible level of innovation and investment that goes into those exceptional cars. You're absolutely right. And people who are not racing fans, and believe it or not, I have to say there are some people out there in the world who are not yet racing fans. I'm sure we'll convert them. You know, they often ask me, well, you know, why are you doing this in racing? And what's the thing with racing and the race car driver? And aside from, as I described, racing being a crucible of innovation, you know, short of going into space, I think it is really that next level of technology. But the other part of it that you just can't duplicate and you really need to make new things happen is competition. Mm. You know, the competition is so intense. The tolerances are so small. The advantage, the edge is so small, tenths of a second. You can't simulate that. You can't duplicate that. And not just in the physics of it, but in the emotion of it. At a certain point in these projects, you know, you get to the point where things are really hard. You may be running out of money. You may be running out of time. You may be 
up against something that you just can't solve. And at a certain point, you need that kind of competitive environment to push your project, you know, say, we have to do this because we're going to go race. And that's a demanding environment. And you have to be ready and you have to deliver. I can't simulate that anywhere. We would have run out of gas a long time ago. You know, we've been doing this now with Sam for eight years. And if we weren't, if we didn't have racing goals, I'm not sure that we'd still be doing it. And so while they're relishing pushing the limits and showing the world exactly what's possible, for Sam, this represents more than being able to do what he does best. It's about showing what technology could be capable of to allow people to simply live their lives. My dad was paralyzed in the late 70s. There was no adaptive equipment whatsoever. His was different. It attacked his right side. He lost the use of his right arm and right leg. But through intensive rehabilitation, he did get a lot of it back. But uh, to see what's happened with technology, that to me is amazing for people with disabilities and what it can do to allow them to get back into life and be really productive members, support their family. And this is Aero Project is, a, is an extreme example of, you know, let's use this for industrial applications and allow people to, you know, whether it's mobility or wheelchairs or working in daily life in a, in a business setting, there's just so many cool things that are evolving voice activation wise, software, et cetera. So, the future is just fantastic. I mean, I'd never wish this on anybody, you know, as far as disability or Parkinson's or MS or ALS, but what you're able to do nowadays is worlds, worlds different than 20 years ago. And with the levels of investment and innovation we're currently seeing across industry, and with so many more technological breakthroughs on the horizon, just imagine what the next 20 years could bring. Thank you to Sam Schmidt and to Joe Varengia from Arrow Electronics. And long may they keep challenging perceptions and breaking new ground together. This podcast is brought to you by Randox and the Goodwood Festival of Speed. I'm Lucy Johnston, and thank you for listening. See you next time. This podcast is sponsored by Randox, a medical diagnostics company and a pioneer in radically changing preventative healthcare with the help of a small 9x9mm ceramic chip called the Biochip. This is the ability to run up to 100 different measurements from one small sample of blood. And this technology measures and reports simultaneous results really very speedily, in some cases two hours, in some cases 35 minutes. Katie reminds us that the biochip isn't just useful when you have symptoms, but that it's important to establish your health baseline even when you aren't feeling sick. Everything within our bodies is so interlinked that when you can take a look at the whole picture and measure everything at the one time, you can establish your health baseline. You can see what's working really well inside your body. And you can also see where there's areas of potential risk or if things were left unattended to would continue to develop into a disease. 
The future of diagnostics is always evolving, and with Randox at the forefront of innovation, everyday people can understand their own bodies better in order to identify preventable diseases ahead of time. To hear more about the work Randox does, visit randoxhealth.com.